morning, Four Oaks. Um, I'm Paul Gilbert. I'm the one with the milk carton picture on the flyer there. Um, as Josh so eloquently pointed out, Susan, my wife, was like, couldn't they have gotten another, another, a different picture that wasn't so bald? To which I said, hello, we don't have a lot to work with here. But nonetheless, would love your support. Hey, turn to John chapter 8. About five or six years ago, there was a series on AMC called The Hatfields and the McCoys. It's the, it was a three-part or four-part series about uh, America's most famous feud. And being from East Tennessee myself, feuding is something I have a, I have a spot in my heart for, okay? So, so we think about feuds, we think about, I, I do, just there's something nostalgic about it. You know, Andy Griffith and the Darling family, or moonshine and coon hounds and chewing tobacco and, and fights and just a little bit of drunkenness and that sort of thing. But when you think about feuds, that doesn't even begin to describe what was going on with the Hatfields and the McCoys. In fact, the papers at the time did not refer, they they referred to it as the Hatfield and McCoy War. And if you know anything of that history, you know that is not an overstatement. There were vigilante murders and Vigilante justice and courtroom drama and sort of Romeo and Juliet-like intra-clan romantic relationships and treachery. There was a public hanging. In fact, one part of the Hatfield-McCoy war or feud made it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the reality is, if you were part of one of those families that was warring or feuding on the border of West Virginia and Kentucky... One of the things that would have been completely foreign to you, just would have made no sense whatsoever, was this idea of neutrality. You see, if you were part of one of those families, you were a part of one of those families. There was no middle ground. There was no neutral territory. There there, there was no Switzerland, so to speak. Your family membership had been was sort of set in stone. It was, it was cast. That, that's who you are. That's what you, that's what you did. Now, when we look, come to our text this morning, we are going to be looking at the story of two families with two fathers and two patriarchs. And ultimately, every person who's ever lived in the history of planet earth, every person who's in this room, every person who goes to a football game in the fall, everybody who's here in Tallahassee, in fact, the world, can trace their spiritual descent, their spiritual lineage back to one of these two spiritual families, back to one of these two spiritual fathers. And understand, there's no neutral ground. There's, there's, there's not a third team. There's not a fourth family. There's not a, it's not a multiple choice test. It's either one or the other. And your family, spiritual family membership, in fact, determines your ultimate allegiance. It determines how you will align your priorities. It determines who or what will hold sway in your life. Your family membership will determine what happens to your sins and what happens to you, eternally speaking. This is where Jesus is going to take us. And so let's stand, read this passage we're going to begin in verse 37 from last week. We, we, we hit this verse. We're going to kind of get a running start as we read through verse 
47. And Jesus is speaking. And he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do not, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need, we need your help this morning. This is a powerful punch in the gut. This is a, this is a tough passage. Well, Lord, help us to see that there's grace here. There, there's grace in these words of warning. There's grace in these hard words. Lord, we, we pray that we would walk out of here this morning with crystal clear clarity about which family that we are a part of. And more importantly, Lord, that we would align ourselves with you to put our faith and trust in you and your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Take your seats. I was trying to figure out a title for this sermon. Sons of Satan was up there. Um, Who's your daddy? Was, 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 was that, that would have worked as well. I went with the more sublime of fathers and families. Now, now Jesus says, I mean, let's just, let's just address the elephant in the room here. Jesus doesn't beat around the bush here. He comes right out of the gate. And he points the finger at them and says, you are of your father, the devil. Welcome to Four Oaks Church, right? You are your father, the devil. Now, to our postmodern ears, sort of what I kind of call our snowflakian psyche, this can, these can be pretty unsettling words, right? Pretty offensive, certainly unsympathetic, absolutely unloving. But let's, let's consider the context for a second. This is John 7 through 8. This is all part of one giant exchange Jesus is having in the temple court with the crowds, the people of Jerusalem, and the spiritual leaders of the Jewish religion. And he's he's engaged in this ongoing dialogue about who he is and who they are and who God is and, and how they're to relate to God. 
And what we have found in this chapter is that every time Jesus sort of peels a layer of the onion back and, and reveals something else about himself, every time he brings a point of clarity about who he truly is, they get angrier and angrier. We're going to find out next week they pick up stones. They want to throw him off the temple mount and kill him. And this is an interesting, an interesting sort of dance that's happening here. As Jesus is revealing himself to them, they are metaphorically sticking their fingers, spiritual fingers in their ears, and they're bearing down harder and harder. The more Jesus says, the, hard, the further they stick their fingers in. And so we have to ask, when someone does that and their life is at stake, what do you do? I was, we were um, at a, a Halloween party, fall festival for those of you who are offended. Halloween is one of our favorite family holidays. But anyway, we're at a Halloween party in our neighborhood, and we were up on a cul-de-sac, and all, the, all the, the neighbors bring their kids, and they dress up and get treats, and it's up on a hill. And there was a mom, and, and she was talking with another group of ladies, and they had a little child that was kind of walking around. And, and the child began to, to wander away a little bit. And you could see the mom, she, there was some concern. And as the child began to pick up speed down this hill, there, this concern turned to alarm. Now at the bottom of this hill was this intersection with the road and where cars are going back and forth and this is Halloween night and so there's a lot of activity in the neighborhood. And all of a sudden this child just decides, the thing I want to do right now is sprint as fast as I can towards that intersection down this hill. And, and this mom, I've never seen anything quite like it. All sort of in one motion, she pivoted she started yelling, pointing, and running without touching the ground all in one fell swoop, okay? And she, like, sped down that hill. She grabbed this child. She, when I say shook him, I don't mean, like, shook him. I mean, like, like grabbed hold of him, embraced him, because he was heading towards certain, certain danger. Now, as mom did that, and little dude had no idea what had, what had happened, okay? He, he might be still traumatized from that experience. I don't know. Did anyone at that party say, oh, mom, you're just overreacting? I mean, I know all the dads would say that, but you, I, what I mean is, mom, you're, you're, you're just so mean. Like, like yeah, come, just chill, okay? Just kind of ease into these situations. no. Any parent with, with any sort of sense understands, like, hey, th- this is really, really important. It's spurring me towards action, towards urgency. Jesus doesn't always address people like this. But let me tell you when he does address people like this. Jesus saves his most forceful words for those who are in the most precarious of spiritual positions. For those who, who are broken, who are humble, who know they stink, who know they need grace, who know they need forgiveness, Jesus is like, come to me, all you are heavy laden. My, my, my yoke is easy, my burden is, is light. But when people like the leaders in this text are, are full of hypocrisy and pride and self-sufficiency, 
on the verge of, of what we would kind of call the, the precipice of spiritual destruction, eternal peril, Jesus speaks truth. Jesus has loud words. Jesus speaks with a tone. Jesus raises his voice, not because he hates them. In fact, I think there's plenty of evidence, and we'll see this. We study the book of Acts that, that religious leaders did come to know Jesus, but just not this second. But Jesus is speaking truths. They're hard truths, but they are gracious truths. And so he's going to speak gracious truth to us this morning about two families, two patriarchs, two fathers. And so we're going to look at those two fathers, the father of faith and the father of lies. Let's tackle the father of faith first. Now, there's a lot of famous debates in history. We think about JFK and Nixon in 1970. If you heard it on the radio, you thought Nixon won. If you saw it in person or on TV, you thought JFK won. A hundred years prior, Douglas and Lincoln. We go 500 years ago, Luther at the Diet of Worms. It doesn't mean they were eating worms, but that's a whole other thing. Okay, the Luther at the Diet of Worms, he was debating the Roman Catholic Church. These are all very famous debates. But there's none debate more famous probably than this one. In fact, this is exactly what this is. This is a debate. This is a point for point, tit for tat between Jesus and these religious leaders, these people of Jerusalem. And in debates, there's usually typically a resolution that you are debating. And here, the sort of the unstated resolution is this. This is so important for us. Who in here truly knows God? If you claim you know God, on what basis? Who can rightfully claim his fatherhood and a right relationship with him? There's no more important question that any of us can ever ask or answer for ourselves than that one. Parents, there's a lot of things you want to teach your kids. There's a lot of things you want them to wrestle through and learn. This is the single most important question they can ever contend with. And the Jewish answer, the Jewish leader's answer to that question of who truly knows God is found in verse 39. Look there. They say, Abraham is our father. Now, we know the story, or most of us do, probably a father, Abraham, the patriarch called out of Ur of the Chaldees brought to the, to the promised land, the father of Israel. The promises were made to him and to his descendants that God was going to bless the entire world through his seed, the Messiah. Abraham himself did not occupy any significant portion of that land. He owned literally a plot of land where Sarah and then later himself were both buried. But, but, but there was, it was indisputable among the Jewish people, that Abraham is our father. He is whom we trace our spiritual lineage, our spiritual heritage. And what they're saying here is, is pretty straightforward. They are claiming that because they are his physical descendants, they hold the high spiritual ground. Because of, because of their lineage, they have a privileged status before God. Now, 
This is, this is not new. This is not new. In fact, I would say it is so, it is, it is part of the human experience. It is ingrained in us, even if it's not manifested exactly in this way. Susan and I have been, been making our way through the, the series Victoria, about the reign of Queen Victoria. And it's amazing in, this, in these episodes, you see entire kingdoms, entire reigns, entire empires, entire thrones dictated solely based upon whom is related to whom. Is your blood flowing through my veins? What's your physical lineage? What is your family tree? What titles do you have by virtue of that? It doesn't really matter about about your character. It doesn't really matter about whether you're a good person or not, or a good leader or not, or inexperienced or not, or any of those sorts of things that we think are important for leadership. It's can you trace your bloodlines? This is essentially what they're saying. This is this is this is the way we look at things. Okay, maybe not in America as it relates to this, but buddy, in a hundred other things which we'll get to. Jesus concedes their their physical lineage. Look at verse thirty-seven. He says, sure, absolutely. But you know what? Regardless of your advantages, your spiritual advantages, and and Paul talks about those in Romans 9, doesn't he? He said, my kinsmen, they have the covenants, they have the law, they have the prophets, they have the promises, but they're lost. And Jesus is saying the same thing. Your spiritual lineage is wasted because it's doing you no spiritual good. Specifically, verse 37 tells us, because God's word is finding no place in you. And we unpacked this last week, this idea that the word of God, is it a guest or is it a welcome family member in your life, in your heart? Does God's word make a home in your soul? Does it have a settled place? Are you living in it, resting in it, not leaving it? That's what Jesus is talking about. And Jesus says, verse 39, if you're a child of Abraham, if you really, really, truly were a spiritual child of Abraham, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. And we have to ask, okay, what is is Jesus referring here? This is important for us. If we want to claim to be a part of the family of Abraham, that our father is Father Abraham with the little song and we dance, remember that whole thing? Okay, Father Abraham, those of you who are under 40 have no idea what I'm talking about and be thankful you have no idea what I'm talking about. But if we're truly children of Abraham, you know, back in, it was in the 90s when this happened with the little bracelets, what would Jesus do? WWJD. And so we're going to go with what would Abraham do? And it spells wad. Anyway, that, that doesn't really sound right, but... What is, what is Jesus referring to? Genesis 18.1. This is an interesting interaction. God had already appeared several times to Abraham and had made promises to Abraham about his descendants, about the nation of Israel, about the blessings, the covenant promises. But the hour was getting late. You know what I'm saying? Sarah wasn't getting any younger and uh, I'm stuck here and I don't really own any land. I'm borrowing, I'm living off the Hittites land and where are you, God? And so Genesis 18 talks about how God makes this, this appearance and, and sort of takes on the form 
of, of, of man. We don't have time to get into all this in terms of the way theologians describe this, but listen to Genesis 18.1. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, this is Abraham, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. See, we, we have this picture here of how Abraham welcomed God. Abraham welcomed the word of God. Abraham was eager for the hospitality of God. Abraham acted, believed, and trusted in God. And listen to the way James 2.23 describes Abraham. Because what Abraham is fundamentally doing here is acting out of faith. He is seeing God. He's hearing from God. He's hearing from his word. He's making a place literally and spiritually in his home. And this is the way James describes him. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called what? A friend. A friend of God. So I think the works that Jesus is referring to here is nothing less than the faith of Abraham, which in fact was demonstrated by Abraham's desire to be obedient, to find a, a place in his heart, in his home, for God and his word to abide. The Jews, this is clearly not where they are. They are seeking to murder Jesus with, with no just cause other than jealousy, petty angriness. They are they're lying about Jesus. We see this all throughout the Gospels, the many uh, trumped-up charges they levied against Jesus. Jesus can actually, though, appeal to, when he, Jesus says, which one of you convicts me of sin? In verse 46, if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? That's not petty words. Jesus, they could find no fault with him, but yet they seek to kill him. They are not walking in faith. Their deeds are not consistent with the deeds of Abraham yet, and this is important, they are claiming a powerful spiritual legacy based upon blood and blood alone. But there is no trust. There is no faith. Ergo, verse 41, what does Jesus say? Abraham is not your father. Because it's a reminder of something, and, and this may sound like old hat for some of us, but in a room this size, I think we all need to be reminded of this. We need to, to remember this as parents, as children, as families, as the family of God. There's no such thing as spiritual osmosis. There, there, there's a ton of great benefits by being a part of the family of God and having a rich heritage. We know that. But not only is that no guarantee, but that can also be a very subtle deception that we are fooled into thinking that we are somebody that we are really not. You know, we have a number of, of 
what I kind of call medical families here at Four Oaks, where it's kind of all in the family. So I'm thinking about our curio friends over there, and they've got more nurses and doctors than people in their family. But you've got sons-in-laws and sons and father and son, this going to medical school. So everybody knows so much about, about medicine, and they're, they're our personal family physicians, so we're thankful for them. But what's interesting is that if someone in that family came down with, with, with some sort of diagnosis that, was, that they were, had a deadly disease and that untreated, they would die. And Matt, this isn't about you, okay? But if, but if the shoe fits, wear it, okay? Untreated, you will die. And imagine them saying, no problem. I come from a rich heritage of medical doctors. My, all of my family knows a ton about medicine, to which you would respond, well, that's great, but what are you going to do? What's going to happen? How are they going to treat you? And you, in turn, responding the way the Jews respond here, Abraham is my father. In other words, my rich medical heritage will carry the day. And, and, and of course, we say that's ridiculous. We don't do this. Oh, yes, we do. Lots of people do this spiritually. I've grown up in the church I have my parents and my great-grandparents. We don't do pews here, but if we did, they sat right here and here and here. And, and, and not only that, but I've been confirmed or I've been baptized. I've, I've gone through confirmation class. I've, I've got a, I, Pastor Paul, I've got a rich spiritual heritage. But the reality and we know this, is that unless the word of God abides in you, unless, unless it has a place in your heart, Jesus says, you're, you're, you're not a son of Abraham. See, Romans 9, 7 reminds us of this. Not all are children of Abraham who are his offspring. The works of Abraham is faith. The father of faith which Jesus now contrasts with the father of lies. The second point, let's look at this. To Jesus' charge that they had a different father and they don't understand what Jesus is saying, verse 41, you can see the way they responded. Look at verse 41, we'll read it. It says, you are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now, what is that about? It could very well be they're taking a jab at Jesus' own lineage. Remember, um, they called him a son of Satan and perdition, and his, his lineages was in, was in question. They said he was an illegitimate son. They didn't know his ancestry. So it could be a jab at that. But I think even more broadly, remember at the time that, that all religious activity outside of Judaism all was steeply, deep, steeply within the context of illicit sexuality. So whether it was temple prostitutes or, or pagan fertility rites or, or orgies or drunkenness or any, any worship of, in a polytheistic culture, whether idols or gods or myths or what have you, at some level involves some sort of connection to illicit sexuality, pagan spirituality. And it's probably most likely that when the, when the Jews are saying this, hey, we weren't born of immorality. They're saying, you're a pagan. You're a pagan. 
We, we, we've got, we, we weren't born, we weren't born of illicit sexual activity. We were, God is our father. Our bloodlines are pure. To which Jesus, his rejoinder, and, and by the way, this, it gets worse than you can, than they can imagine. <laughs> Look at verse 44. And this is the heart of his accusation against them. And we want to unpack it. He says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. Let's unpack this for a second. This word murderer, it literally means in the Greek man killer. Not to be confused with Holonotes man eater. That's a whole different thing, all right? In the truest sense... Satan murdered the whole human race. When he deceived Adam and Eve, he plunged all of us into ruin. And that was intentional and that was by design. That's always his intention. It's always his design. And the way that he did it, he he did it by lying. And guys, this is the way most deception happens in our lives. Not often, are we faced with a bold-faced lie and, 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 and being convinced of the truth, we immediately turn away from the truth to a deception? That's not how it usually works. It's much more subtle. What did Satan say to Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say? See how subtle that is? Satan wants to eat your spiritual lunch. And it often begins with, did God really say sex was designed for heterosexual marriage? Did God really say that I have to be faithful to one person, my spouse, for my life? Did God really say to, to, to not divorce my husband or spouse except for sexual immorality? Did, did God... Could it, did God really say that I wasn't going to get my way and be happy in every single thing that happens in my, did, I mean, fill in the blank for yourself. I need to fill in the blank for myself. That's Satan's tactic. tactic. This, look, look back in, the, in verse 44 where it says that Satan does not stand in the truth. What that literally means is Satan's starting point is not the truth. Not only is it not his goal, it's not even his starting point. He comes out of the chute lying and deceiving. Hebrews 16, 18 says that it is impossible for God to lie. Okay? Conversely, it is equally impossible for Satan to tell the truth. Even when he gives you bits and pieces of the truth, it's always with the goal of deceiving you. Sexuality is wonderful it's a wonderful gift to be enjoyed. That is so true. That is so true. But Satan wants to take that truth out of its context and destroy your life with it. See, when Satan speaks a lie, what Jesus is saying is that he is right at home. He is not out for your spiritual good. Can we keep going? I know it's bad news, but let me keep going. <laughs> Satan just doesn't lie and murder. He is a liar. He is a murderer. 
and he speaks and out and acts out of his own character. Now, if we have the courage to listen, the courage to hear, this could save our souls. This could save your soul. And this is the hard word. Do you realize that you were not born into the family of God? You were not born into neutrality. Each and every one of us is born into the family of the father of lies. See, we're not born as good people who make mistakes. We're not born as people who who sin. We are born sinners. That is our identity. Listen to the way that Jesus describes this in verse 43. He says, you cannot bear to hear my word. Now, what does that word bear mean? You cannot bear to hear my word. I'm going to change the circumstances to protect the guilty as I tell this story. But there's six people in the Gilbert abode. And this applies to two of them, and I'm not going to tell you which two. Um, But there's one person in our family, bless the heart, he or she or it, whatever you want to describe, okay, loves to chew ice. I mean, just loves to chew ice. Would love nothing better than to get one of those big 64-ounce gulps from Circle K and pack it full of ice and on the couch. Just watch TV and on the couch. Now, this isn't pleasant for anyone, but there's a particular other person in the family, he, she, or it, okay, that it particularly grates on. And not only does it grate on them, it's intolerable. In fact, when the chomping is going on, not only can they not be in the same room, they cannot be in the same house, on the same street, or in the same zip code. They are gone, okay? And Susan is very patient with me as I chomp my eyes. It's about Susan. No. <laughs> they have a low tolerance. They can't stand being around it. That's the word. You cannot tolerate my word. You don't have capacity for my word. You can't assimilate to my, to my word. You can't stand being around my word. See, that, that's who we were all born to be. No matter what our lineage or how nice we gussy it up or how, what, how, what age we're baptized or what suit we wore to our first Easter or, or what have you, this is, this is us. But when God's spirit changes our heart, when he opens our eyes through the new birth to see the beauty of Christ and the beauty of his word, something amazing happens. Not that we don't struggle and not that we don't sin, but but listen, it bothers us when we do. See, God's word, when it lives in us, it doesn't grate on us any longer. Now, it convicts us, and it challenges us. I mean, it makes us uncomfortable, but it soothes, it comforts, it changes. The psalmist, and some of you know this experience, says it's pleasant. It's like honey on my lips. Because you know this experience if you are part of the family of God. If you're part of, if, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you know that his word, there are times When his word comes so alive to you, even though it may be hard, challenging, convicting, whatever, you know, apart from this word, I've got nothing. This word is so sweet. 
this word is so precious to me. It's my north star. It's what, it's the gravitational pull is pulling me back to it and to Jesus. That, my friends, is the difference between belief and unbelief. Leon Morris says this, the children of God will so love the truth that they will believe in Jesus. The children of the devil will be so characterized by lies that they will not be able to accept the truth precisely because it is the truth. Some of us wrestle with the idea that if only our spouse or only our child or only our friend or only our relative, if only they really knew. And Jesus says, have you considered the fact that they really do know? That's why they've rejected. Because they know. And they don't want to be a part of that kind of fatherhood. Which is why we need the new birth. Which is why we need to be on our knees for each other and for our kids and our church and our family and our city and our nation. But Jesus concludes this by asking, where he says it in verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. So a simple question for us. Which voice are you listening to? Because ultimately there are two voices and two voices only. And remember that both of these, these voices are not so much competing voices competing for your time and attention because they both believe what is best for you. Remember that, that Satan's voice is competing for your allegiance because he knows it will destroy you. He knows it will, he knows it will ruin your life. It will bring you destruction His lies, you can do it yourself, you don't need God, you can live your own life, be self-sufficient, you're your own boss, I come from a great family, I've accrued spiritual capital, I am good. That's the voice of a liar who wants to destroy your soul and to take as many with him as he can. But there's another voice that speaks through the word of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit that says, I will be your father if only you will let Jesus be your savior. And so as we, as we end our service, as we come to the table, we're saying, I'm not good. I am lost. I am needy. I am broken. I am ruined. But, but... I belong to the Father because Jesus died for me. He laid down his life for me. He took on the curse of sin and death for me. Whose voice are you listening to? Whose family are you a part of? Who is your Father? I'm going to ask you to do something, Four Oaks. Before we head to the table, I'm just going to ask you to just to bow your heads where you are, and I want to ask you just a series of questions. I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the Lord's Supper to us. And, and, and here's some of the questions I ask you to prayerfully consider. Do I know what family I'm in? Do I know who my Father is? Jesus, am I listening to your voice? If not, show me where. Show me what to do. Show me where to go. 
Folks, as you're prayerfully considering those questions, remember the mark of a Christian is not someone who doesn't sin, who doesn't fail, but someone who knows the voice of their father and runs to him to find mercy and grace in their time of need. Just spend a moment or two pondering on those things.